0: Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, There are those people who watch this on the internet, and there are those people who watch this uh, both live right now, but, but at later times. And anybody who's watching this at a later time needs to know that we are the first Sunday that we're meeting after a horrible hurricane deposited 50 inches of rain in our area, leaving a lot of people hurt leaving 50-plus people dead, a lot of people uh, who've had their homes destroyed, and a, a group of God's people who have come together to try and and show the mercy and the love of God in the midst of, of the horrendous time from a, a physical and, and, and emotional perspective here in the Houston area. And so if you're watching this, maybe even one, two, three, four, ten years later, should God tarry and the Internet survive... and you'd be so bored in this world that you've got nothing else to do at this moment, then I just want you to understand the context within which this class is being taught. But I'm not deviating from the class subject material itself. So even though we're in those circumstances, I believe those circumstances may even help us better, if not identify, at least personalize, some of what we're talking about in class. The context of the class and what I've been doing now, I guess this is the 14th lesson in this series, is when Paul, the apostle and the the rabbi, the Jewish rabbi, early Christian apostle Paul, was arrested in 57 AD in Jerusalem at the temple. He was taken in front of the Roman authorities and held under arrest. And he did not have a lawyer... But if he had come to me as his lawyer, how would I have defended him? And it's been an interesting way for me as someone who's not only practiced law for almost 35 years, but someone who has studied Paul since I I really started getting into Paul at the age of 15. So well over 40 years it's been interesting for me to see Paul in a different perspective as I've considered him as a potential client. Because I look at things from a legal perspective. And it's caused me to look at this biblical account in a very real world manner. And so you can't get more real world than where we are right now in Houston, Texas in terms of, of an acute awareness of, of of crisis and and difficulty. Now, because of our campuses being combined today for services, we've got some people who haven't been in this class, so I give you a little bit more background to tell you. And I loved last night. Uh, 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 we've got Pastor Stephen Trammell here. I think this was on your team, mudding out team. Yeah, we love Pastor Stephen. I think it was on Pastor Stephen's mud-out team. Didn't you have Stephen Miori, which is like little Pastor Miori on your team? <clears throat> Stephen does a lot of our videos. And I saw Stephen being interviewed on KPRC2 at one of the homes y'all were mudding out yesterday. And I made me, of course, I've known Stephen. I coached him in first grade basketball, so i 've known Stephen forever. he and our son will grew up as as best buds, and I think if you'd accounted the number of times he spent the night at my house by high school or will spent the night at his house it i I, I think uh, the Meoris are responsible for rearing my son, and I 'm responsible for rearing theirs and so i 'm going to take full credit no um, stephen it just made me so pleased and proud to hear him on TV for the world and the internet to view forever. Say, we're here doing this and we're not just doing it for the homes of people within our church. We're doing it for our neighbors as Pastor David used the parable of the Good Samaritan so well this morning. But we're not just doing it because of anything other than he, we love because he first loved us. And he quotes that on TV and he doesn't quote it because he's a holy Joe looking to pass around the collection plate. Not that uh, uh, anyone would. I think they'd probably go to a different passage for that. But um, he did it just as part of his natural conversation because it was truly his motivation and and the motivation of of Pastor Stephen and the others on that team, it was simply their motivation for being there. And so many of you who are ministering so acutely and so deliberately because of the love that Jesus had for us. i got to tell you, when Pastor David spoke this morning about how easy it would be just to stay in an air-conditioned home that didn't get affected by the flood instead of being out there. And and by the way, if you're one of those people who stayed in an air-conditioned home, that doesn't mean you can't be doing stuff there. And there are people who, for physical reasons and other reasons, have to be in their homes. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. But I think it's a marvelous point to illustrate Our air-conditioned homes are nothing compared to the glory of Jesus in heaven. And yet, he left that glory to come rescue us after the flood of Noah that we're still left here on earth, but still in need of his care, to come mud out for us, if you will. And so it's a marvelous illustration that we do because he first did for us. The reason this is so important to me right now in this class is because one of the most difficult questions I have to ask every potential client I have. I have to ask him this question What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? You want me to be your lawyer? What do you want me to do? If Paul had come to me, I'd have had to ask that question. I need to know, Paul, what's your motivation? Are you after freedom? Is that what you want? Do you want me to try and make this work where you get famous? Are you after some great name? Do you want me to try and turn this into an economic opportunity for you? I've got a client right now who's written a number of bestseller books. New York Times bestsellers. And he's absolutely convinced that a really big hit TV show that's been around now for six seasons or so has been grabbing their ideas from his books. And so I wrote a letter. And I said, hey, you've been grabbing your ideas from my guy's books. Here are his books. Here are the ideas you grabbed. Here are the names you took from his books. And we want this fixed. And in conversations with the lawyers for the studio, the question is natural. Well, what does your client want? Does he want money? Does he want credit? Would he like us to say, hey, this TV show was based upon, in part, these books by so-and-so? You know, is he looking to get on to easy street off of this? You know, and and, and some people look at Paul getting arrested and and say, well, maybe he wants freedom, maybe he wants fame, maybe he wants fortune, maybe he wants easy street. But you read the life of Paul and you realize he's not looking for any of that stuff. So then you start thinking maybe he's a a bit of a nutter. Maybe he's not thinking the way normal people think. Maybe he's got some self-destruction desire. And he's just looking to, to to mess himself up. Maybe he's just looking to live a life so that everybody goes to him and says, Oh, poor Paul, we pity you so much. And he's just looking for that type of attention. My suggestion in this class is if Paul were sitting there and we were having this dialogue and I said, what do you want? Do you want fame, freedom, fortune, easy street? Do you want a pity party? Do you want uh, uh, just to ruin your life? What do you want? There's not a doubt in my mind that Paul would tell me that he's got a higher calling. And that's what's behind his motivation. There's not a doubt in my mind that this higher calling is exactly what Paul wants. Let me tell you why. Paul never went after freedom. Paul could have gotten it. Now, this is not the situation where Paul's thinking, well, you know, summer's upon us, and and hey, or, or, or I, I need a place to stay, and a jail cell is nice, and, and you know, you get three square meals a day. No. Roman jails were not Mayberry where Aunt B brought the pie by. Okay? <laughs> Roman cells were dank and dark. Prison was not used as an incarceration place as punishment. It's not, hey, you get five to ten years for what you did. No. Punishment was immediate. You get crucified. You get uh, 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 sent out from the Roman Empire. Exiled. You, You get your hand chopped off. You get sold into slavery. I mean, the, 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 the consequences, the punishment was an immediate punishment. Jails were simply holding cells until you got to your trial and your punishment. But it's in America and other places of, of civilization now where you're innocent until proven guilty. Wasn't always the case. And so you can go, this is a picture that I've got in the PowerPoint of the hole in the ground of the Mamertine prison there in in Rome where ultimately Paul will spend his last days before his martyrdom. Subsequent imprisonment, not this one. But but it's squalid. They don't feed you. You got one-third slave rations if you were in prison. That's not enough to live on. So you have to have friends and family bring you food. I don't know if you're looking at that carefully, but there's not a toilet in that cell. Disease is rampant in there. Stink, death all over the place. No, Paul's not just looking for some time in prison. Prison in Rome was never intended for a long-term stay. You got crumbs for food. You're in chains while you're there. So I'm asking Paul this question, knowing this, what do you want? And the logical answer from Paul would have been freedom. Just get me free. Let me go. I'll be able to go out and do good things for the church. I'll be able to go out and do more mission trips. I'll be able to go minister to to synagogues that haven't heard the glory of Jesus. I want to go to Spain. I want to take the word to the West. That's a very logical expected answer. But it's not the answer that we'd have gotten from Paul. Because what Paul actually did is Paul figured out that through his imprisonment he was going to have a chance at something. This is Paul's discovery. Paul realized he was going to get to talk to high Roman rulers about Jesus as the Messiah. Whoa! I've got a list of things a mile long that I'd like to talk to Donald Trump about, President Trump. But I want to tell you, if I had a chance to sit down and talk to him about Jesus, that would trump the rest of my list. (laughs) I don't think much of Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea. I try to love him with the love of Jesus, but I do not like him one bit, and I don't like what he's doing to our world. Greg and I have been emailing about him because it's just, it's an, it, man, I'd love to talk to him about Jesus. I, I like Angela Merkel, German chancellor. She's, she's in a tough situation in an election race. Right now, her election means a whole lot of things. You know what I'd love to talk to her about? Jesus. Paul is in a unique position... He gets to talk to high Roman rulers about Jesus of Nazareth. And I got to tell you, if you understand the relevant events in the history behind what was going on, it starts to make sense to you. I don't want to go through this in great detail because I did it in the last class two weeks ago. And I'm going to come back to it next week because we're going to talk about one last stage of this next week. But just consider this. If you look at the time events in that 40 to 60 A.D. era... The emperor of Rome was Claudius. He reigned from 41 to 54 AD. Now, as the emperor, he rules it all. He is the top of the top of the top of the top of the top. He's the most powerful individual in the world at that point in time. Certainly the civilized world, as we would call it, Western civilization. It's not fair to say civilized, but... You you take out the Asian world of China and things like that. In Western civilization and, and what comes from it, he's the most powerful man in the world. He is succeeded on the throne by Nero. Most powerful man in the world. Now... The most powerful man in the world, the emperor of Rome, gets to appoint an extension of his hand into provinces and territories. A procurator who carries with him the imperium of Rome, the power of Rome, who is Caesar in that place, appointed by Caesar, nobody else. Accountable to Caesar. Nobody else. Who's your boss? Caesar. Yeah, but who's in the middle between you and Caesar? Caesar. Okay? First line. The first one is Cuminus, who is Rome's procurator for the area that included Judea, which would include Jerusalem. He's there from 48 to 52 until Claudius the emperor fires him from his job, strips him of his Roman citizenship, and exiles him because he didn't handle the Jewish controversies right. And the Jews complained to him about it, complained to Caesar about it. And so Claudius appoints in his stead Felix. Now Felix is the procurator for Judea, but not because... Realize Paul gets arrested in 57 AD. Felix is whose Paul's case is going to be heard by. But Felix didn't get his job because he was tight with Caesar. He got his job from the earlier Caesar. Nero, eh, just hadn't gotten around to figuring out if he wanted to deal with him yet. So Felix has got a job in some precarious situation. And so from 52 to 49... I mean, to 59, Felix is the procurator for Judea. Last time, if you were here, we tried to find a picture of him on the Internet. And we weren't able to do it effectively. But we do find coins that Felix had minted with Nero's name on them. And so Marcus Antonius Felix mints the coins and puts down there, and this is a guy appointed by Caesar. We talked about him a bunch. I'm going to skip through this stuff because we had time to do it. His entire defense isn't set me free. I didn't do anything wrong. His entire defense is, let me tell you about Jesus. Your wife, one of three, your wife is Jewish. You need to understand the Jewish Messiah because he came for the whole world. And instead of trying to be set free, Paul's just sitting there thinking, I get to talk to the number two man in the kingdom, right below Caesar himself, and try to persuade him Jesus is Messiah. That trumps freedom. That trumps fame. That trumps fortune. That trumps easy street. That trumps a pity party. That trumps the comforts of this world for Paul. Paul's got that. Paul could have gotten released. Luke makes it clear. He could have paid what we would call a bribe. They didn't call it then. They would call it that then. They would call it a fine. Court costs. Pay the judge. It was commonly done. And Paul doesn't do it. Because you know, Felix keeps bringing Paul in, thinking Paul's going to pay him some money. Paul came from money. We've covered that in this class. He wasn't, you know, his, his family had a little do-re-mi, okay? Paul had it or could access it. Let me put it that way. And so Felix keeps bringing Paul in, thinking he's going this time he's going to pay the court costs. No, Paul's loving it. Every time he comes in, let me tell you more about Jesus. Let me tell you more about Jesus. He's going to call me back next week. He wants some money. I'm going to tell him about Jesus. Paul's not going for the freedom. He's not going for any of those other motivations. Now, is this Paul's on a weird lark? No. This is the fabric from which Paul's life is woven. This is his character. This is his modus operandi this is his mo and the best example i can do to illustrate that for you is to ask you to consider for a moment what happened to paul in athens paul has just had some problems with uh, the law and the jews and and they've hustled him out of town on a mission trip and he sailed down to athens greece it's his first time to go to athens we think it's the first time the gospel's been taken to athens Athens is an incredible place. It's the home of philosophy. It's where Plato, Aristotle, well, Socrates first, Plato, Aristotle, that's where they came from. Or at least became famous. They have a marketplace. The Greek word for marketplace is agora. But it's more than simply a marketplace. It's the meeting place. And the agora, in, in, as we would look at it, reconstructed. You can go there to the ruins, but a reconstruction shows it's got, it's got uh, different stoa or hallways where schools would meet. the, the, the People would sell things, yes, but it, it was a place of community and a place of meeting and a place of education and th- all of this stuff. And we can read about this in Acts 17, 18 and following if we go to the Elmo for a moment. Paul is waiting for the rest of his missionaries to show up at Athens. Paul's waiting for them at Athens. He went there by himself. That's kind of cool. I mean, all of the rest of Paul's mission trips we read about in Acts, he's got a full team with him. This is him solo. They hustled him out of town. He's all by himself. By the way, you can tell a lot of the character of someone when they're by themselves out of town with no accountability. Oh, I'm not saying Paul's the kind of guy who would have gone off and, and found the temple prostitutes. But I'm saying it would have been a real easy time for him to lie low. Would have been a real easy time for him to take a little R&R. <clears throat> but his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked. That doesn't mean he was angry. Provoked means it just, just grieved him. Because these people needed to understand God. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Those are people who weren't Jewish but would go to synagogue because they, they believed there was truth to be found there. And in the Agora, the marketplace, that's Greek, Agora. And in the Agora, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they brought him to Mars Hill or Areopagus. May we know this new teaching that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I mean, this is like what they did for fun. It's before the internet. And TV. And Bob Dylan. And so, they've got to find fun where they can. Now, let's go back for, yeah, they're already ahead of me at the PowerPoint for a moment. We don't Generally, no Epicureans and Stoics. Epicurean sounds like a grocery store chain, maybe food. Sort of no Epicureanism, sort of no Stoicism, but you know, that's about it for us unless we've been reading the books. So let's crash the books for just a moment. Let's spend eight minutes understanding Epicureans and Stoics. All right? Scoot that over there. Go, go, go. go. Thank you. All right. Epicureans. Epicureans are what we would call. Materialists. It was a school of thought started about 350-400 years before Paul by a fellow named Epicurus. Epicurus was a materialist and that means he believed the things we feel, touch, and see are the real things. He believed that you can come to truth through reasoning. Just think things through logically. He did not believe there was life after death. And so as a result, he said, if you want to be happy in this life, you are pursuing the best goal you can. The highest goal in this life is to be happy. You want your motivation? Be happy. That's your motivation. Now, you might start thinking, oh, yeah, 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 those Epicureans. Those are the ones who like... Uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. No, 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 no. He was a wise enough fella to know eat, drink, and be merry doesn't make you happy. Look at what he says. We don't have his writings per se, but we've got them recorded by another fella who wrote History of Philosophy, another Greek fella, Diogenes Laertes. And so these are Diogenes' writings. We can read them in Greek, or we can read them in English. I'm going for the English. And I have a degree in Greek. Um, Of the necessary desires. Some are necessary if we're to be happy. There are some things that we desire that are necessary if we want to be happy. Some if the body is to be rid of uneasiness. A disquieting. And some if we're even to live. A desire for food and water. Shelter. He who has a clear and certain understanding of these things, if you truly understand that there are some desires that are necessary. Some things are you desire that just aren't necessary. He's talked about that in other places. But if you truly desire what's necessary, then you'll direct every preference and aversion. In other words, everything you choose to do and everything you choose not to do will be directed towards securing health of your body Tranquility of your mind and seeing that this is the sum and end of a blessed life. This is the total of a good life. Is just making sure that you're healthy and at peace. And you'll direct your efforts toward that. He says, for the end of all our actions is to be free from pain and fear i got to tell you, if Epicurus had been my client, I know exactly what he'd have wanted. Get me free. Get me free. I want to be free from pain and fear. I want to be in a place where my body can be healthy, where my mind can be at peace. Get me free. That's the instruction of Epicurus. And when once we have attained all this, the storms of the soul... Lie still. Or the tempest of the soul is laid. This translation's like like 100 years old. <clears throat> when we are pained because of the absence of pleasure, then only do we feel the need of pleasure. Wherefore, we call pleasure the alpha and omega of a blessed life. We know how Greek used alpha and omega to mean the beginning and the end and all things in the middle. Jesus used the same language in his revelation to John I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end we would say a to z unless we were in England and then we'd say a to z but when he's talking about pleasure he's not talking about bad stuff that, as we would call it sinful pleasure the when we say that pleasure is the end and aim we don't mean pleasures of the prodigal or sensuality we mean absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. It's not an, un- an unbroken succession of drinking bouts, of revelry, sexual love, enjoyment of fish and other delicacies, we'd say fried chicken, which produce a pleasant life. It's sober reasoning. It's searching out the grounds for every choice and advantage. It's banishing those beliefs through which these greatest difficulties take possession of the soul. That's what it is. Epicureanism said your goal in life is to be happy, and the way you're going to be happy is by getting rid of all of those expectations that you're never going to have anyway, and just take care of your body, be healthy as you can. And try to be at peace in this world. And the only way you'll be at peace is really by shunning desire. The Stoics. Diogenes, Laertes wrote about them too. Interesting. Stoics, the the head of the Stoic movement wasn't a guy named Stoa. Stoa is the Greek word for the hallways where they would stand and talk and teach. Zeno. Z-E-N-O. Zeno was the, the, the formative man for Stoicism. Look what Stoics say. Let me scoot this back a little bit. Zeno. By the way, there were a bunch of Zenos because other Stoics would change their name to Zeno. And there was a Zeno from Tarsus who was a famous Stoic uh, from Paul's hometown. Paul knew these Stoics. Paul knew these Epicureans. The deity, they believed in one God of sorts, say they, is a living being, immortal, rational, Perfect or intelligent in happiness, admitting nothing evil into him, taking providential care of the world and all that therein is, but he's not of human shape. He is, however, the artificer of the universe, the, the shaper of the universe, or the, the not shaper artificer in a way can be a shaper but it's also, they they believed he was in a sense part of the universe. And as it were, the father of all both in general and in part that particular part of him which is all pervading and which is called many names according to its various powers. You can call his name Dia because all things are through or do him. Dia is the Greek word for through or do. Um, Either one. Zeus from Zena, which is He's the cause of life, zane, which is the Greek word for life. Or he pervades all life. You might call him Athena because the ruling party extends to the ether. Hera, to the air, that's the word for air. Hephaestus, because he spreads the creative fire. Poseidon he stretches to the sea, etc., etc. The difference is, for the Stoics, God's not interested in us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't pay attention to us. So the Stoics are a lot like the materialists of, of the Epicureans. But the Stoics are also very non-emotional. They just think you need to be, you know, God's detached from this world. He doesn't care about us. Nor should we care. So into this world comes Paul, and Paul's got a chance. You've got Epicureans and Stoics who believe the purpose in life is achieving happiness by moderating what you expect. Paul comes into this story, and Paul says, no. The purpose in life is finding and knowing and serving God, and that's going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, gentleness, self-control, that's going to produce everything the Epicureans and the Stoics believe that they can try to find and more. Paul had the answer, but the answer was not run from everything. The answer was open your door of your heart to Jesus. And so if we look then at the encounter that Paul had, look at Paul's addressing of these, these Epicureans and these Stoics. Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I want to tell you about. I love the way Paul starts out. He doesn't start out saying, well, you're all going to hell. Bunch of idolaters. No. He starts out finding that part of God that's been crying out in the lives and hearts and minds of his audience. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by men. Now, at this point, the Stoics and the Epicureans, but especially the Stoics saying, well, that's right. You know, for a Jew from Tarsus, which was not, by the way, Tarsus was not some, you know, it's not Muleshoe, Texas. If you're from Muleshoe, I don't mean that offensively. Tarsus is like Lubbock. It's a thriving, <laughs> thriving metropolis. It's the hub of the plains. It's the, it, it is the seed of knowledge. It is the Harvard of the South. <laughs> or as people at Harvard like to say, Harvard is the Texas Tech of the Northeast. <laughs> the God, I'm pretty sure I've seen that t-shirt there. The God who made the world. And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, like he needs something. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's got agreement from him right now. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all over the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place they're still with him on this they're still saying amen that they should seek god now that's a digression the epicureans and the stoics say no 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 you seek happiness you 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 seek peace of mind and health of body and paul's just reoriented his compass and said do you think god did all of these things so that you would turn inward. He did it so that you would seek God and perhaps feel your way towards Him and find Him. There's a higher calling than being happy. And you know, He's not that far from each of us. Even your poets have said, in Him we live and move and have our being. We think that's from Epimenides. But we don't have the the certainty of that. As even some of your own poets have said. For indeed. For we are indeed his offspring. That's from Erotus' poem. Uh, uh, the Phenomena. It's a really cool poem. It talks about Zeus and how he made the stars and everything. Aratus, who Paul's quoting, by the way, is from Tarsus, Paul's hometown. So if we're God's offspring, if your poets are right, We shouldn't think that the divine beings like some gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he's commanding everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul's done something very subtle here in rhetoric. Paul made a shift. He's been talking about how God made people and they should seek God and they should find their way toward Him and maybe they will find Him. And then he switches to us. And he's just personalized it for the Epicureans. It's no longer what they should be doing. Now it's us. So we ought not think that God's just something made up by men. He's commanded all people everywhere to repent. But now it's we. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked him. The materialists didn't believe in it. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom are also Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. Paul was always looking for a chance to teach Jesus. And one of the neat things is, is you never know what you're going through right now, what I'm going through right now, what anybody's going through right now. When we live for Jesus, we're living for something that lasts longer than drywall. When we're living for Jesus, we're living for something that lasts longer than any home that we'll be in. I want to read you a little bit from a, one of the first historians of the church. <clears throat> Luke, I guess, would be a first historian of the church, but this is from Eusebius of Caesarea, Dale Hearn. Eusebius lived 200, was born about 200 years after these events of Paul. He's writing around 300 A.D. And he's writing about significant things that have happened within the church. And in his history, book 3 of his history, chapter 4, verse 6 through, actually I'm down to about line 11. In addition to these, Dionysius, one of the ancients, the pastor of the diocese of the Corinthians, relates that the first bishop of the church at Athens was that member of the Areopagus, the other Dionysius, whose original conversion after Paul's speech to the Athenians in the Areopagus, Luke describes in the Acts. Dionysius himself, by the way, Hot tamale. Um, let me see the real time. Hot tamale. Okay, we're out. I'm sorry. We've got to go mud houses. So the bottom line is, Zeno, the original Stoic, crusty, crusty. Stingy, wouldn't give you a dime, didn't like people, chewed people out. He famous for one-line cut-downs. You've got two ears and one mouth. You ought to be listening twice as much as you talk. Or he pulled another kid aside who kept talking and saying, Have your ears melted and flown into your mouth? Okay? I mean, bad, bad dude, but really known for being stingy. And I think that's one reason he could tell everybody else, Hey. You know, get rid of your desires. Uh, I'd like something to eat, please. Do you have some Hey, get rid of that desire. I'm not giving you anything. A letter of Dionysius to the Romans, to Soter, who was then the bishop. This is the Dionysius that Paul converted on the Areopagus. Here's one of his letters. This has been your custom from the beginning to do good in manifold ways to all Christians and to send contributions to the many churches in every city. In some places, relie- relieving the poverty of the needy and ministering to the Christians in the minds by contribution you've sent from the beginning, preserving the ancestral custom of the Romans, true Romans you are. And he goes on and on to talk about how giving they were. Dionysius, by the way, would be martyred in about 80 AD, 80-81, somewhere in that range. For his faith. What Paul do you want? Paul says don't let me out of this jail. Right now I've got an ability to talk to high Roman rulers about Jesus the Messiah. And my goal is to get to Caesar. I want him to know Jesus. So I'm going to tell you some points for home. We're going to take three of them. It will be real brief and then we'll go home. But it's important we cover these. These are from Paul's prison epistle, an epistle he wrote during the imprisonment that we're talking about, though it's probably by the time he'd gotten to Rome and was imprisoned in Rome. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetorian guard in Rome. That's the very guard that guards Caesar. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment's for Christ. I'm not here because I'm guilty. I'm here to teach Jesus. He's converting the guards that guard Caesar. He doesn't want to get released. He's got a higher calling. His motivation is Jesus. It's what Stephen Meori said. We love because he first loved us. It changes who we are. It allows us to say with Paul, I count everything I have as loss. I'd lose the house, the drywall, the the carpet, the flooring. I'd lose the food. Everything I've got, I count as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, I've suffered for his sake the loss of everything. Paul had. He'd lost his career. He'd lost his his family. He'd lost his money. He'd lost his liberty. He'd lost his freedom. Everything. He'd lost his home. He'd lost his companions. And he says, all of that? Garbage. Compared to knowing Jesus and being found in Christ. Nothing has value beyond Christ. And then last, Paul said, I know, that's not Acts 17:28. I didn't fix that right on the thing. This is Philippians 4. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. Here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He'd be a weird client to have. But boy, that song Beth sang today, it is well with my soul. moved me to tears. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul would know it. Whatever you're going through in your life, Find Jesus, know Jesus, serve Jesus, please. Can I bless you in his name? Father, thank you for the chance to proclaim the beauty and wonders of your love that stirred in the hearts of many throughout the millennium and that stirs in the hearts of many today. Bless my brothers and sisters as we seek to serve in your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our everything. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Sunday.